Good morning. Uh, one summer while I was in college, I lived in Berkeley, California, which gave me a chance as a baseball fan to visit other baseball stadiums. Uh, I love baseball, big fan. And uh, so friends of mine and I bought some tickets to go see the Oakland A's at the Oakland Alameda Coliseum. I've always liked the A's. I mean, I'm a Cubs fan, let's not get crazy. But I've always liked the A's. I always had a soft spot for the A's. I don't think it's because they used to be from Philadelphia and I'm from Philadelphia. Uh, if I'm honest, I think it's because I like that their mascot is an elephant. So we bought these tickets, but as college students, we don't have a lot of money. So we buy, I mean, like we're in like the second deck, like trekking up. I felt like I needed to, uh, to get a courtesy shuttle just to the stairway to, to find our seats. But we, and this is, uh, Oakland Alameda Coliseum is one of those like stadiums built in the 70s that was multi-purpose football and baseball. So they're just massive. It's this stadium that's used for both sports and yet not great for either of them. So we have seats in right center field, way, way up high. And what I noticed when we got there is that you can't totally see the whole field from up there. And by can't totally see the whole field, I mean it's a large part of the outfield fence that we couldn't see at all, which meant we couldn't cheer on our own. When there was a ball hit to the, to the fence, like if the A's hit a deep fly, it, off the bat we'd be like, ah! And then we'd have to take context clues from people who could see, like, ah! Yeah! It's a delayed reaction in center field as we like, have to respond to other people. They were not, they were not great seats. It was, the, it was that proverbial, like, partially obstructed view seat. You ever had one of those? If you've ever sat behind me in a movie theater, I apologize because I am tall. So I may have partially obstructed your view. But, you know, maybe you've gone to a Broadway show or a movie or a sporting event and you've had seats like this. Why do you need to see home plate? It's not like the majority of the action takes place right there. You know, or maybe seats like this. It's like right there in the middle. Or maybe seats like this. That's Yankee Stadium. You can't, you can't see center field or right field. You are missing a lot. Look at that guy. He's leaning. He's got to like shift over to get in there. So did something good happen? Or maybe you go to an English Premier League game. You're really excited. And this is your view. I think what they're telling you here is that goals are the only exciting part of soccer because that's all they're showing you. <laughs> but imagine if you had that view. Like, that, that would stink, right? That would stink. That's not why you went. When you sit in those seats, you're missing something. The experience isn't the same. There's something in your way that obstructs the view of the thing that you really want to see. And that's actually what the people of Israel are going through today as we wrap up our series, The Gateway, on the book, The Getaway. Man, James got me. He kept saying The Gateway. The Getaway on the book of Exodus. We talked last week where God gave uh, the law to his people and he made a covenant with them and, and they were excited, like, we will do as you say. I mean, everything looks great. This relationship is great. Everything's going well. And then we pick up today with Exodus chapter 32. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. We're going to start at verse 1. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, because Moses had been on the mountain talking with God, and he'd been there for a little while, it says they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses, if that is his real name. Like, that's, I feel like that's how they said that. It's like, you know who Moses is, who brought us here from the land of Egypt. 
So Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. And out of them, he crafted a golden calf. What we're going to look at is this, this concept of idolatry, right? That's not a word that we use often, but it's a concept that's all throughout the Bible. We're going to unpack that, understand what it means and what's it look like for us. And, and we're going to start with this idea that idolatry trades real for imitation. Idolatry trades real for imitation, right? Real is better than fake. I think we'd agree with that. Like if you had a chance to have an authentic item or a knockoff, we'd want the authentic item. We want the name brand. We want, real is better. But what idolatry does is it substitutes. It takes something lesser. It takes something fake. It takes something artificial and it replaces it with real. Now, we don't use that, that idea of idolatry a lot. That's, that's, that's an old sounding word. And it doesn't just mean that you have a shrine in your house with gold versions of various gods that you make sacrifices to, though it is that. But it doesn't just mean that, right? What it means is replacing the truth with a lie. Let me give you an example. You're familiar with the idea of a solar eclipse, of a solar eclipse, right? Looks like this, if you could manage to see it without your eyes like burning out. But really what's happening is that this, the moon is rotating around to be in between the earth and the sun so that the moon is blocking the light of the sun as it travels to earth. So we can't see that light, right? It, it slides in front and it blocks that. That's exactly what idolatry looks like for us. It's when we allow something to come between us and the source of life. And when we do that, darkness is what follows. So why would Israel do this? Right? God had, things have been great. They just, they're, they're all excited. And God has given them the Ten Commandments and like, you know, given them the law. And they're like, man, we're on board with this. We're going to follow you. So why did they do it? I think we see some cues in, what's, in, in these verses. First is they saw that it was taking Moses a long time. I think they, they got fearful. They started to worry. Where's Moses? Why, why isn't he coming back? They were fearful. What, what if he leaves us? What if he's not here? This guy is important to us. And they also became impatient. Moses had said he was coming back. M Moses said, hey, guys, he didn't say, hey, I'm leaving forever. Good luck. He, they knew where he went, but they became impatient. And there's another piece here. They said, Bring, make us gods that can go before us, who can lead us. They wanted something tangible, something they could see, something they could understand more easily, something they really, something they could control. That's what they really wanted. And so they say, make us something. And Aaron says, take the gold rings. And what he means is the gold that the Egyptians had given them when they left Egypt. So he's really saying, take the gold that God has given you through the, through the Egyptians. Take the gold God has given you and make a God. Make us a God. And we might hear that and go, well, I don't do that. I don't meet with my family and go, give me your jewelry. I'm going to melt this. I'm going to smelt this down and, and make us some, some sort of baby animal that we'll all sit around. It looks differently for us, but, but we act similarly. Because at the root of this is the Israelites saying, we think we know better. We think we can find our own good. We think we can find our own meaning. We think we can find our own truth apart from God. That's what we do. When we say that, we, what we're doing is creating our own gods. We are 
choosing what, what we want to worship and order our life around. When we buy into the lie that we can do life on our own, we're creating idols. That if we just believe in ourselves enough, we can bring the life we want into existence. We are deciding what is most important, and we're saying it's, it's my view of life being made manifest, right? The experience that I want, that, what I feel like I deserve, when that becomes my goal, I have made an idol. We often work hard to ignore any evidence of that to the contrary. This old theologian says, man's mind is like a store of idolatry and superstition, so much so that if a man believes his own mind, it is certain that he will forsake God and forge some idol in his own brain. And that is obviously like the deepest and most impressive way to say that. But what, what he's really saying is when we buy into that idea that we know what's best for us, that process leads us to create an idol in our image. That we are defining the goal, we are defining our God is what we want and what we think we deserve. The problem with that is it's just not real. It's just not real. That's the problem with fake stuff, right? They, they don't hold up under scrutiny. They're just not real. They're easier to get. They're, they often cost less, but they're just not real. God is real and has shown himself to be real. He's proven himself to be real. And remember, we, if you were here last week, we, we talked about God showing up in front of Israel through this fire that consumed this mountain and the smoke that enveloped it, and he spoke to his people in thunder. God showed up. I mean, that is powerful. God says, I am real, and I am showing you that. And here we are just a few chapters later, and they've forgotten that. If you have a relationship with Jesus God has proven himself to you. He's shown up in your life. If you're, if you're honest and you pause and you stop to think about it, you've seen God work. He's softened rough edges in your life. He's convicted you of, of sin. He's healed brokenness. God has worked in your life. And at the very least, even if you say, well, I've never seen God show up in my life. If, if you've never heard this before, I would say that God has proven himself and he's given us a book that says I've proven myself over thousands of years that's what the Bible is, is God saying, you don't have to just take my word for it, though you should. He says, I'm going to show you, I have been this, this is who I am and who I've been and how I've been faithful. God has shown himself to be real. A fake, man-made God doesn't change anything. But a relationship with the true and living God changes everything. Idolatry replaces the truth of God with a lie, something real with something fake, something forever with something temporary. God wants more for us. As we continue the story, verse 4 says, Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. Second thing that we're going to look at with idolatry is that idolatry obstructs our view of God. It blocks our view of God. It, it shapes our view of God. Because what's interesting in this is that idolatry really led them, this, this 
state of their hearts, this selfishness, this, this wrong belief, led them to revise their own history. We see all throughout, really many different places in the Old Testament, but in Exodus 20 in particular, we talked last week, that God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. But what do the Israelites say here? Well, back in verse 1 and 2, they say, Moses brought us out of the land of Egypt. Right? They're like, now Moses is the guy. Moses is my dude, man. Moses brought us out. Thank you, Moses. Shout out to Moses. Like Moses was the rescuer. They, they give Moses the credit for that. And then what I find interesting is they keep talking. Once this calf is made, they say, these are the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now it's not Moses. Now it's this golden calf thing. This is what brought us out. They're rewriting their history to shape and follow the narrative, the new story they're telling, saying it's not God, Moses did it. And now it's like, no, 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 now it's the golden calf. Like the golden calf is a representation of the God who did it. They stopped seeing God for who he is, and that warped view led them to sin. And what's crazy is in this one thing, they broke the first commandments. God had just given them the commandments, and here they've broken three at once. And it's got to be frustrating, right? Because if you're anything like me, you've been in those situations where you say to your kids, hey, uh, don't take this from your sister. And then you turn around and they've taken this thing from their sister. And you're like, I just said, don't take it from your sister. I didn't say it two years ago. I literally just said, don't take it from your sister. And you took it from your sister. I just said it. Those are the moments where you feel like you're going crazy. You need another adult in the room to go, you heard it, right? It's not just me. Like I literally just said this, right? God had literally just given them these commandments. And the first three are, have no other gods but before me. No God but me. I am the Lord your God. And he says, the second one, don't make a graven image. Don't make an idol. And the third is, don't misuse the Lord's name. And they go like, hey, if we're going to do one, let's just get all three in there. Because they make this, this other God. And then they, they ascribe to this God things that are true of, the, of Yahweh, of the real God. And what's fascinating is they include these fake gods in, in some of the things they do to worship the true God. I mean, they have just gone off the deep end. And the way that we know that is in verse 6. It says, after they, they build, Aaron builds this altar and they have this festival, they indulged in pagan revelry, which is a really nice way to say, among other things, sexual sin. When this is used in other places, it's... it's Talked about with, with sleeping with temple prostitutes as a form of worship. Like, this was not good stuff. They had gone off the deep end. And what we see is the state of their heart has become so warped that they are doing the very things that they know God has told them not to. These are obviously not good things, right? They're pretty obviously not good things. And sometimes that's the way we think of idolatry. Well, I just need to not do these super big, bad things. Just don't engage with pagan revelry, and I'm good. And I would say, that's a good place to start. But idolatry isn't just the bad things that take our focus completely off of God. It's also the good things that take our focus partially off of God. It's the good things that we add to God and value as much as we value him. It's not just loving things more than God. It's also loving things as much as God. That's why it's so dangerous for us. Because I think a lot of us can be on the defensive. It's like, hey, I'm not going to have an altar to this fake God in my house. But, but it's the part of where we elevate good things to a place where they shouldn't be. That's hard. 
Because those things that begin to take our heart away from God can be good and positive things, right? It's not necessarily these evil things. What we see here is that Israel didn't completely abandon God for the golden calf. They included the golden calf in their worship of God. In essence, they added to him. Right? They didn't reject God out of hand. They didn't say, I'm choosing a, a completely new God and, and getting rid of, of this God. They said, hey, we're just going to add him into this mix. And that's our attitude, really. That's what we do very often. Aaron built an altar to the true God. They held a f- sacrifice to the true God. I mean, those are, those are things that, ways that they would worship God, but they included the golden calf into that. And we do that too. We do that too. But for us, they look different, right? For us, sometimes it's children become our idols. And that's hard because we're supposed to love our kids and care about our kids. But we can begin to idolize our kids if we're not careful. We can begin to value their happiness. We can begin to value what they want. We can begin to value them liking us more than we value being the parent that they need. That's how we begin to idolize our children. We can idolize our children by finding our identity and being the perfect parent, by finding our value in that. And here's the thing. Being a parent is part of your identity. I'm not saying that it's not. I'm not saying you shouldn't love your kids and care for them for the love. Don't hear that. Eat your broccoli. Josh said it doesn't matter if I love you. No. I mean, they should eat their broccoli, but you should love them. But the issue, idolatry comes into play when we begin to see parent, being a parent as what defines us, not just a little bit, but in whole. It is the, the question to ask is, is this the most important part of my identity? Because being a parent is part of my identity, but is it the most important part? Do I want to be seen as the perfect parent? Do I want my kids to be perfect because I want other people to think well of me? We can make jobs an idol wanting to be seen and known as successful and accomplished. And it, I don't th- think wanting to be successful is the wrong thing, but is that how we order our life? Is that how we shape how we feel about ourselves? Being successful. Comfort. Comfort's a big one. Those are all things, good things, that we can take and make into idols. And the reason that we cannot see them as idols The reason that we can't put our worth and value and identity in those things is that all of those things can change. None of those things are guaranteed forever. And I don't just mean, what if something terrible happened to your kids, though that is a reality. But I mean, even if your world is shaped around being a parent, what happens when they move out of the house and they move on? A large part of what you have built your identity on is now gone or at least fundamentally different. I think comfort for us is a big one. We want to be comfortable. We may not say those words, but we do, and that shapes a lot of our approach. If we are comfortable, we want to protect that. If we're not comfortable, then we want to be comfortable. I mean, that's true of me. When I think about my life in the areas where where I, in the moments where I've not been a great husband or a great father or a great friend, those are the moments where I have sought my comfort first. Those are the moments where I I have decided what I want comes first. My good comes first. And I've made that an idol. Even though 
I've promised my wife that I will put her needs before my own. That's the, the promise I made to her when we got married. But in those moments that I don't do that, it's because I've chosen to idolize my comfort above her needs. When I don't want to read that book for the 17th time, it's because I'm saying, I don't want to do it. My needs matter more. I pursue my own comfort. ESPN tried a new thing this year with a sideline reporter. They did the Boogermobile, which sounds gross, but it's not what you think. They had a guy named Booger McFarland who was a sideline reporter, and they built in this rig so he could sit on the sideline and kind of drive up and down and, and give you know, his impressions of what's going on. We're gonna, that's what it looks like. There's a problem with it, though, an unforeseen problem, and that is that if you paid a lot of money to have sideline seats, this is not the view you want to have. They put a TV there. They knew this was a problem. They're like, I'd love to be in the meeting where they're like, listen, I realize we're blocking these like $500 seats, but just put a 42-inch plasma there. No big deal. It's literally blocking the play. Now, you might say, well, they still get to be there and experience the ambiance and the atmosphere, and they get to hear the crowd cheer, and they get to see, they get to see the sideline. That's fine, but they've missed the best part of being there. Their view is obstructed and, and they don't get the full experience. The best part of being there is missed and that's what it looks like for us to pursue and to invest in, in these idols. Even when they're good things, we miss the best part of what God has called us to. Idols obscure our view of the greatness and the beauty of God. We take this beautiful scenery that God has created and we build our own stuff in there. Now, maybe not right in the middle, but we build it on the fringes and little by little, we obscure what God has created and wants us to experience. One pastor says it like this, idolatry means turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. It means turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. It means saying... I, God has given me, has blessed me with children, but I turn this into the most important and defining aspect of my life. It means turning our job or success or any of these things into the ultimate thing that defines our existence. And when we hurt, we feel like we shouldn't, right? We don't deserve that. God, God why would you let that happen to me? Because I deserve better than that. But what we miss is what this pastor says, your pain could be God prying open your life and heart to remove a gift of his that you've been holding on to more dearly than him. Idols obstruct our view of God. This story continues. The Lord told Moses, quick, go down to the mountain. Your people whom you've brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. By the way, quick note, God here says, Moses, your people whom you brought out of Egypt. Do you think God got confused there? No, God knows he's the one who did it. If this is not a great example of a parent, like a biblical example of a parent going, listen to what your son did. I don't think God is blaming Moses, but I think God is communicating his frustration and his pain over what they've done by framing it that way. He goes on to say how quickly they have turned away from the way that I've commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf, and they have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them, and I will destroy them. 
Man, that's strong language. Third thing we can, say, we can take away is that idolatry has consequences. Idolatry has consequences. God is angry here. God is deeply angry. Listen to some of the ways that God's anger is talked about. It says, fierce anger can blaze against them. Another place it says, your wrath burn hot against your people. Another place it says, your burning anger. Those are strong words. God is deeply angry. And it's important that we know, because for some people you're going, yeah, that's, that's the God I've heard about, that he's just an angry God. But it's important that we know that God is not angry because his feelings are hurt. God is not angry out of insecurity. God is sovereign. God is God. God is angry here because of the disobedience of the people. They're called stubborn and rebellious people and stiff-necked, like unwilling to, to, to bow, that God has said to them, I want you to know how to experience a rich life with me. I want you to know to experience how to experience the meaning and the purpose and the value and, and that, that I've created you to know. And people go, we don't need you to find those things. God is angry at their disobedience, that they have willfully rejected what he's commanded them. He willfully rejected what he's taught them. They literally just agreed to God's covenant that we talked about last week, and here they are trashing it. And what we should get from this is that sin is a big deal. We don't want sin to be a big deal, but sin is a big deal that God has called us to live this, this life, and that when we miss his standard, when, when we functionally say to God, we don't need you to find good, we can find that without you. When we live in that rebellion, it has consequences. We want to live like it doesn't. We want to live like we can do whatever we want. I, I like, listen, that's where my heart's drawn to. Like, I don't like the idea of consequences, but that doesn't make them less true. Our sin, our rebellion from God has consequences. But God is also angry here for another reason. I think that it's a beautiful reason. God is angry because his people have strayed so far and chosen so poorly. They chose fear over faith, control over surrender, something temporary over something eternal, the lie over the truth. I think God is angry because he is grieved by this. I get angry as a parent when my kids don't do what I want them to do, right? But God gets angry here because his children chose something so much lesser than what he created them to experience. In essence, God is angry because we settle. Because God has created us to experience this rich life, and we go, no, I'm fine with much less than that. I'm fine with something that's ultimately empty. I'm fine with something that is not as meaningful. God is a jealous God, but not jealous the way that we are. Not at all. Jealous in a totally different way. God is, is wholly jealous, is righteously jealous, because he alone is real. And he alone saves. God wants us to know that and experience that. And so he is angry. And Moses intercedes and has a conversation with God. And so then Moses is going to go down to talk with the people. And then he hears what's going on. And then he sees it. And then it's Moses' turn to be angry. He, it says he burned with anger. He broke the tablets that God had just given him with law on it. Like God had literally just written these tablets and God, Moses broke them and he goes down and he sees the calf they made and he burned it. 
and he grinds it into powder and he throws it into the water and he forces people to drink it. And I need you to hear me say this. The Bible is a real book about real people and real things that happen, which means sometimes there's funny things. Moses saw the idol, was so angry, he burned it, put it in water, and he's like, you want an idol? Drink up. Totally apparent move, right? Oh yeah? You think you can sneak a bag of Hershey's Kisses? That's fine. You eat the whole thing right now. I don't care if it makes you sick. I just love that that was his thought. He's like, oh yeah, just everybody drink some. They messed up big time. They messed up big time. Aaron messed up too. And when he's confronted, he deflects. He's like, well, uh, this is the, the people. The people wanted this, right? I, I didn't want this. You know how they are. I love he says this. You yourself know how evil these people are. He's going, Moses, come on. These guys, they're terrible. What do you want me to do? He deflects and, and blames others and he rationalizes. But then this is the best part. He says, fine, fine. Whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. And when they brought it to me, I simply threw it into the fire and out came this calf. I mean, that's going to be one of those things where you're like, seriously? That's what you're going with. You're going with, I just, I don't know. It just showed up. Verse 33 tells us, but the Lord replied to Moses, no, I will erase the name of everyone who has sinned against me. Sin is a big deal. And that's a sobering statement. And left alone, left by ourselves, that's the future that awaits us. Our idols lead us away from God into rebellion. And that rebellion separates us from him. And ultimately it leads to our, our death, our eternal death. This one writer says, we always pay dearly for chasing after what is cheap. We pay dearly for that. But there's hope. There's someone to step in on our behalf and fix what we broke. There's hope. The next day, it says, Moses said to the people, you've committed a sin, but I will go back up to the Lord on, on, on the mountain. Perhaps I will be able to obtain forgiveness for your sins. Perhaps, perhaps, possibly. He's saying, maybe I can, but he points forward to the one, the fulfillment of the covenant. Like we talked about last week, he points forward to God's son. He points forward to Jesus, the one who says, but I will absolutely keep the covenant, but I will absolutely make make." atonement for your sins. I will pay your penalty. I will pay what you owe. I will obtain forgiveness for you through my death. Moses, interceding on behalf of his people here, foreshadows the way that God, through the sacrifice of Jesus, will keep the otherwise broken covenant with his people. That God will rescue his people and return them to him. And that's meaningful because our idols always pale in comparison with God. Our idols are never able to accomplish what they hope they will, what God already has. God gets at our idols by showing how he is greater than what we're looking for. They can feel seductive because they are tangible. They can seem so real and so important. But if we're honest and we're really willing to take a step back, we can see how foolish our idols look when we compare them to the real God, how ridiculous they look in the light of day. These idols are ultimately empty. And we need to ask ourselves the question, do you want to be in charge of your life or do you want a life of meaning and substance and purpose? Because you can't have both. I want to leave you with three questions today. Three questions. First is this, what thing do you care about most? What thing do you care about most? 
You might be asking, well, how do I know that? And I think that's a fair question. I want to give you a couple things to think about. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? What do you talk about? What do people know about you? Because what people know about you is what you talk about, and what you talk about is what you value. And what you value is where you invest your time and your money. Take a moment this week and reflect on those things. Take a moment this week and write those things down. Ask people in your life, what do you know about me? Because that will help us start to take the steps to understand those things that have a grip on our heart. And once we know that, we can start to understand, do I value this too much? Do I value this more than I should? Do I value this more than God himself? Second question, why? Why do you value it? What need does it fill for you? We all have needs in the depths of our soul that we can't fill on our own. What need does it fill for you? Maybe you're struggling with loneliness. Maybe you're wrestling with what's your purpose in life. Maybe you want to be loved or valued. or Maybe you want a life of meaning or you want to avoid pain or you want to be comfortable. But what's the need that that is filling? I wish I could tell you what it was for you, but what is it? What is that, that hole in your life that the things that you value are, are filling? And the last thing is this. What truth needs to take its place? What truth needs to take its place? What truth does God want to speak to your heart and to your soul? Maybe it's that you are loved by the God of the universe who created and knows you. Maybe it's you are valued by your heavenly Father. Maybe your discomfort is God trying to get your attention. What truth needs to take its place? As one writer says, if you uproot the idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol will grow back. And that's really the ultimate truth that needs to fill us up, that Jesus needs to take the place of the hurts we've experienced, the lies we believe, and the idols we've built up in our life. Because that's how we know freedom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that that's true. We thank you that you love us that much. And Lord, I ask for, on behalf of myself and all of us here this morning that you would help us to understand those things that we value too much those things that we find our identity in apart from you, because those things will never be enough. Help us to identify those idols in our lives, Lord, to understand why they have hold on us so that we can hear you speak truth to our hearts and understand what it means to be known and loved by you. Father, we thank you, and we pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.